Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the April 18th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to share highlights of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. There's a lot of new material, so let's get started. Primary hyperparathyroidism is associated with an increased risk for chronic kidney disease. The only treatment is surgical removal of one or more of the abnormal parathyroid glands. Current guidelines recommend parathyroidectomy in patients with primary hyperparathyroidism and chronic kidney disease, in part to mitigate the risk for and effects of chronic kidney disease progression. However, there are limited data documenting the association of parathyroidectomy with long-term kidney function to support this recommendation. The first article reports an analysis of data from more than 43,000 adults with primary hyperparathyroidism that was not associated with better long-term kidney function in older adults, but was associated with preserved kidney function in patients younger than 60 years of age. Researchers from Stanford University studied adults diagnosed with primary hyperparathyroidism to compare the incidence of sustained decline in estimated glomerular filtration rate of at least 50% for those treated with parathyroidectomy versus non-operative management. The researchers found that the weighted cumulative incidence of a sustained GFR decline of at least 50% was 5.1% at five years, regardless of how primary hyperparathyroidism was managed. In the overall cohort, there was no difference in the adjusted rate of a sustained decline in estimated glomerular filtration rate among patients treated with parathyroidectomy versus non-operative management. However, subgroup analyses indicated that patients younger than 60 years treated with early parathyroidectomy were more likely to have preserved long-term kidney function. According to the authors, these findings suggest that preservation of kidney function should not be a primary consideration in making treatment decisions about parathyroidectomy in older adults with primary hyperparathyroidism, and that focus on fracture risk and quality of life is more important in this group. However, clinicians should discuss the potential benefit of early parathyroidectomy to reduce the risk for chronic kidney disease and associated complications in patients younger than 60 years who are diagnosed with primary hyperparathyroidism. Next is a new Annals Beyond the Guideline Grand Rounds, where a general internal medicine physician and neurologist discuss treatment options for benign prostatic hyperplasia and how they would apply their recommendations to a patient who wants to learn more about his treatment options. All Beyond the Guidelines features are based on the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and include print, video, and educational components. Multi-cancer early detection tests, sometimes called liquid biopsies, represent a potential shift in cancer screening. These tests search for very small quantities of cell-free DNA and protein biomarkers released from early-stage cancer cells into the blood before symptoms or signs occur. Paired with machine learning, these assays use proprietary algorithms to suggest a likely tumor origin for the DNA and proteins. Some multi-cancer early detection tests are already commercially available as lab-built tests through the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Act, but none are currently approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Primary care providers are accustomed to screening for individual cancers. All screening tests have risks, but the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommends cancer screening for five cancer sites among older individuals based on a rigorous appraisal of randomized trials, trends in cancer prevalence, and modeling studies. 
the approximately 18 tests in development search for between two and over 50 different tumor types simultaneously, including both common culprits and others clinicians rarely come across. The tests will likely cost between 200 and 1,000 US dollars and are not currently reimbursed by insurance. That could change, however, with new legislation before the US Senate to oblige Medicare to reimburse these tests if approved by the FDA. Because the FDA considers diagnostic accuracy and not clinical outcomes when evaluating tests, these tests may become widely available before we have data confirming reductions in cancer mortality or downstream harms, including overdiagnosis. A new commentary discusses the challenges clinicians will face as these tests become increasingly available. This month's In the Clinic Review discusses a standardized evidence-based approach to periprocedural management of anticoagulation. Go to annals.org to read the review and earn CME and MOC credit by taking the associated quiz. Removal of the ovaries decreases the risk for ovarian cancer and greatly benefits the survival of women at high risk for this cancer. However, not enough is known about how removal of the ovaries affects other possible outcomes, such as heart attack, stroke, other types of cancer, and how long patients live. In the next article, researchers from the Danish Cancer Society Research Center report a study of health records for 142,985 women who underwent a benign hysterectomy with or without bilateral salpingo ovarectomy to compare long-term outcomes. They found that women who had their ovaries removed had a lower risk of ovarian cancer, not surprising, but other health outcomes varied by age and menopausal status. Premenopausal women who had their ovaries removed had higher risk of hospitalization for cardiovascular disease. Perimenopausal, early postmenopausal, and late postmenopausal women who had ovaries removed had higher risk for cancer. The authors noted that women who had their ovaries removed at perimenopausal ages had more deaths when measured at 10 and 20 years after surgery, but women aged 65 years or older had fewer deaths when measured at 20 years after surgery. According to the authors, these results suggest a cautious approach to removing ovaries in women at low risk for ovarian cancer. An accompanying editorial highlights the complex factors that must be considered when deciding to recommend BSO. The editorialist emphasized that decision-making about bilateral salpingo ovarectomy is best left to shared decision-making between patient and physician. This week, the U.S. announced the end of COVID-19 as a public health emergency. While COVID-19 has evolved into a less dire phase, the need to identify effective treatments persists. The next two articles report studies of treatment strategies for non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19 that reduce the need for subsequent hospitalization and death. First is a report of a randomized controlled trial of more than 800 adults diagnosed with COVID-19 that found that combination therapy with amubaruvab plus romucivimab significantly reduced the rates of hospitalization and death compared to placebo. The clinical benefit was similar regardless of whether therapy was given within five days or more than five days after symptom onset. A second randomized controlled trial found that treatment with oral fluvoxamine plus inhaled budesonide among high-risk outpatients with early COVID-19 reduced the incidence of severe disease requiring advanced care. Previous studies have evaluated these drugs independently. The combined effect seems to offer benefits over individual use of each drug. The study authors note that theirs is the first to evaluate a drug combination for treatment of ambulatory patients with COVID-19 in a randomized trial. A difference from prior trials is that their trial was conducted in a population that was approximately 95% vaccinated. 
Given the safety, tolerability, ease of use, low cost, and widespread availability of these drugs, the researchers suggest that their findings may be useful for clinicians worldwide who are considering treating outpatients. Next is a commentary that also relates to COVID-19. The use of face masks for source control and as protection against exposure to infectious agents was well accepted in healthcare settings prior to the COVID-19 pandemic as part of both standard and transmission-based precautions. During the pandemic, expansion of use of face masks as part of universal masking for healthcare personnel, patients, and visitors in healthcare settings was implemented, as in most public settings, to reduce the spread of the novel virulent pathogen. In the context of no population immunity, limited testing capacity, and no medical countermeasures, such as vaccines and therapeutics, universal masking seemed to be a sensible protective measure. Now that COVID-19 has transitioned from pandemic to endemic status, healthcare settings remain one of the last environments where widespread masking requirements continue. Many healthcare facilities have maintained these requirements even after state and local health authorities have lifted them. The authors of this commentary present an argument that as the context and conditions of the pandemic have changed dramatically and favorably since masking requirements in healthcare settings were initially adopted, masking policies in healthcare settings should also change. They do not think the evidence supports that masking be incorporated as a required component of standard precautions for all direct patient care encounters, regardless of symptoms or diagnosis. The commentary is certain to generate controversy. Go to annals.org to read it and post a comment to share your views on this issue. Next is a policy paper from the American College of Physicians that details recommendations to ensure that as measures are developed to gauge telemedicine services, they are evidence-based, methodologically sound, and clinically meaningful. The recommendations focus on telemedicine services provided in ambulatory care environment, including the interactive audio and video telecommunication systems. ACP recommends that any performance measure used to evaluate telemedicine visits should adhere to the same criteria as in-person visits and that existing measures for in-person visits should be evaluated to see whether it would be appropriate to also include telemedicine visits. ACP also cautions that telemedicine visits need to be incorporated into electronic health record systems so that those visits do not become standalone encounters further fragmenting care delivery. The paper strongly recommends that measures must be tested to show that they are reliable and valid for the telemedicine environment, as well as attributed at the appropriate level, whether that's to an individual physician, group practice, health system, or health plan. Lastly, ACP recommends that measures should be used to evaluate the impact of telemedicine on under-resourced communities to ensure that access and quality of care are not harmed in communities that lack digital access. Next is a Medicine and Public Issues article that discusses upcoming stricter European Union regulations for the approval of medical devices. The new rules increase requirements for clinical trial testing for many devices before being able to be legally placed on the market and extends requirements for rigorous clinical surveillance of benefits and harms to the entire life cycle of devices. New expert panels are currently established by the European Commission to advise in the assessment of devices towards certification and the role of previous notified bodies are being expanded. The regulations do not contain a grandfathering clause, thus all existing medical devices must be recertified under the stricter regulation. The recertification deadline has recently extended to 2027 and 2028, depending on the device's risk class. Whether most device manufacturers can meet these new requirements is uncertain, and the regulations will likely have important consequences for manufacturers, researchers, clinicians, and patients. 
The authors call for enhanced collaborations between medical device industry and physician partners to meet the new requirements in a timely way to avoid shortages of existing devices and to mitigate barriers to new device development. Also new on annals.org are an On Being a Doctor essay, an On Being a Patient essay, ACP Journal Club summaries, and the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guys and the Annals On Call podcast. The Annals Consult Guys discuss the care of a patient with central retinal artery thrombosis. The Annals On Call podcast is about environmental health. I regret to end on a sad note, but it would be amiss not to acknowledge the loss of a person very special to Annals of Internal Medicine, Dr. Frank Davidoff. Dr. Davidoff served as editor of Annals from 1995 through 2001 and led and strengthened the journal through a time of shift from print to digital publication. He established a strong foundation that has enabled Annals to continue to thrive. He was an important mentor to me, and I am humbled to now fill a position that was once his. There's a brief memorial to Frank on Annals.org that highlights some of his many contributions to Annals. He will be missed. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Stay well. I hope that you'll take a look at some of the new material I've highlighted here and return in two weeks for the next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.